Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh my goodness me! What a fantastic goal! What a goal! That is absolutely superb! Huge cheers go up around Emirates Stadium. Hello and welcome to Arsenal Weekly Podcast Stories, where we have an extended chat with some Gunners legends and get the stories behind their Arsenal careers. This episode, we'll be talking to a number of those involved in Amy Lawrence's excellent 89 documentary, which came out in November. The film tells the story about a famous night at Anfield when we secured the first division title in the most dramatic of fashions. We're going to start by hearing from Amy about the genesis of the film. Anfield 89... I know that a billion Arsenal fans seem to have claimed to have been there, but if you actually were, and I was very lucky enough to be there, um, it's an event that is in your mind and in your heart incredibly strongly, almost as much today as the day itself. It, it had a really profound effect, I think, on people who were close to it and experienced it for real. Um, a friend of mine, who was also there that night, got in touch with me recently and said... What about making a film about Anfield 89? Because there's been a few football films made recently. And um, he virtually didn't need to finish the sentence. Straight away, it was like, whoa, what an unbelievable idea. So there was then a series of conversations I had with another mate who was uh, involved in filmmaking. And he then had a conversation with another friend who is the director, as it turns out. Uh, and in those series of conversations... He then went on to Universal Pictures, who he was discussing various things with. Don't suppose you'd be interested in a film about Anfield Data? And he virtually, again, didn't need to finish the sentence. Yes, everybody had the same um, gut reaction, which was, this is a phenomenal, great sporting drama. There's not a lot in terms of sporting drama that matches it. Um, Not just the ending, but even the, the era that it happened the Hillsborough disaster, which was incredibly close to it in the timeline and had an impact emotionally, but also just logistically in the fact that the game ended up being moved to the very end of that season when absolutely everybody else had finished playing football, first against second, head to head. It was a set of circumstances that really has never been repeated. I'm not sure it ever will. Uh, 26th of May 1989 happened to be my last day of school. Uh, and like any sensible person about to take really serious exams, I thought, well, obviously I must bunk off and go to Anfield. Um, so it, it was a necessity. Uh, I was quite lucky with circumstances, had to concoct a story to um, persuade my parents 
something that sounded believable. I wasn't going to not watch the game, but I had to explain this absence um, for most of that day and the night. And uh, I met up with um, one of my pals who we used to go and stand on the North Bank then with, who had a car, Ford Fiesta. We piled down to Highbury where there was a convoy of 26 coaches on the travel club. Uh, We went up on the travel club and there was an enormous traffic jam that day, which meant that we actually, all the, all the guys on the coach ended up missing kickoff, which was just an extraordinary thing for you know, the biggest game of your life. And we listened to it on the radio on the coach. Um, eventually managed to, to get there and get in. And uh, the atmosphere was unlike any other match I think I've ever seen. I've been lucky enough to see World Cup finals, um, uh, watch uh, uh, Arsenal complete an unbeaten season, you know, some incredible football moments, Champions League finals and so on. But what happened at Anfield 89 just puts everything in the shade. Liverpool were the best team in Europe, probably the world in that time. And for years and years and years and years, you just started every season pretty much expecting they were going to win the league, which they normally did. They had the best players. Um, They had superb talent. They were tough. They were serial winners. You just pretty much knew that if you were up against Liverpool, expectations generally weren't high. And that's a a massive part of why this game was so remarkable, because it wasn't... it, it, It seemed like a fairy story to be able to be the David and overtake Goliath, which was, was, was what it was at that time. Um, in terms of the birth of a kind of modern Arsenal, uh, Arsenal won the league in 71. And it was a long, you know, nearly 20 years until this opportunity to win it again that came along in 1989. Um, and football was in a period where a lot was going to change at that, at that moment. Uh, in a quick period of time, you had... Um, money coming in, you had players coming from abroad, all of the barriers broke down, football was transformed uh, and 89 was just before all these changes were happening all-seater stadium, the changing mood around football, um, it was a vibrant period for football of change and this was a huge dramatic, wonderful moment that you could argue that some of the changes that happened in football wouldn't have happened without what happened in 1989 well, the biggest strength of the 1989 team was the famous back four, and they had to be at their very best against one of Europe's best attacking teams that night. So here's Tony Adams and Steve Bold, and then Nigel Winterburn and executive producer Lee Dixon reminiscing. Well, it's been difficult for me, I have to tell you. I'm not so sure I know the sequence of it all, but I know the importance of it, which is uh, the most important, I think. Steve was off the pitch, I was, so, I was yeah, on I the subs bench at the time, yeah. <laughs> me and Mercer just got subbed. physically knocked me off my feet, you know, after the game. Not the actual goal, but when we had actually won, I actually just went down. I just The emotion just kind of knocked me sideways and, uh, uh, and I just fell to my knees. You know, I've never done that in all my career. And, and it was just it was so... Maybe it was the first one. You know, no one expected us to do it. Maybe the emotion just got the better of me. And I just kind of went, oh, my God. And literally my legs give way. They completely give way. After I tapped Mr. Aldridge on the head. <laughs> That's another story. I, I think we were all full of happiness. Uh, I spoke to Jim Rosenthal the year before, actually, when we got bombed out of the Euros in 98. Uh, 88, sorry. Oh, my God. Uh, in 88, and I said to him, look, keep an eye on us. I think we've got a hell of a chance of, uh, of winning the league. We've got a great squad. And he just kind of, yeah, OK, then. So, yeah, and we actually had a bet on it. 
Uh, I think it was about 50 quid, it might be, in those days probably was, about fiver maybe. Um, but no, we, we had a bet and I said, have a look at us, you know, and uh, I had a disastrous personally, you know, Euros in 88, but I think I focused right back into the team and, and you know, a good bunch of guys there that all were working every week. Um, and we went and pulled it off, which was uh, an amazing thing. It was fabulous. I think that, that, um, that I think Brian Marwood had just joined me and Brian with a two additions to the squad, I think, that year. And, um, you know, George, George uh, I remember clear as day that George said, we'll, we'll win something this year, Steve. Mm. You know, join us. Because I could have gone to Everton at the time and um, he said, no, come here, we'll win. He didn't say what it would be, but um, he, he instilled a belief in all of us, I think, that we had a chance. That was, the, that, I mean, they were a top, top, top club at the time. Um, you know, the, the, the great club that Sir Alex Ferguson wanted to beat. And, you know, they won it the year after, for the, I think the, the last time they, they've won it. So, you know, that was a great team. It was a really top team that we... Uh, and actually... For two decades. Yes, for, well, two for decades, sure. They won everything. Um, you know, we used to come out and you'd t- touch the This Is Anfield sign. It was... The old cop was in, you know, still uh, in effect at the time. The place was just a magical place to go. Um, I went and for us and to beat for them, and we lost three 0 again. I had Alan Anson's testimonial, and just got absolutely wiped. Yeah. Just like, you know, thrashed a bit. They were top. Mm. It's been good. I've, I, and actually, I can't actually remember since uh, we all left the football club. Mm. I'm sure there must have been an occasion where we have been back together. But thinking back very quickly, I can't remember us all being together, um, particularly with Tony's all. All around the world, boldly working at Arsenal. Mm. Uh, I don't think I don't, the four of us have no, been in the same room no. since. We pro- certainly pro- haven't talked about what we did or, or no. '89 or anything like that. I mean, it's just—it's more from you sort of be associated, or I feel now, is with when what people talk to you about it when you finish. As I said to you before, it's mm. like I didn't even think about individually the back four and then what we did in '89. It's just people come up to you and say, "Oh." Amazing how long you guys played together and, and what you achieved. I think it's just it was a job that you enjoyed doing. You're in, you're in, immersed in it when it's happening, and so, and you've got the disappointments uh, of losing. You've got the anxiety before games. You've got all that, and it's a present thing that goes is going on on a daily basis. And then when that's all over, you you haven't got all that anxiety. So you tend to look back at it at all because it was a great achievement. You you look back at all the good bits come out. And you go, yeah, it was right. And so you forget all the angst and all the pressure and all of that because that's, that's your job and that's what we did. Um, but you also forget the seasons where we didn't do very yeah, well. Yeah, but absolutely. because you were successful uh, continually uh, for, the, for the period under George and, uh, and Arson, you know, you forget there was a couple of seasons, I remember particularly one mm. season, we were, what, 14th or 15th yeah. in the league and we needed, I think we'd be... It was like, it was like 94 or something, or 93. No, no, it might have, been, might have been the season after we won the, uh, one of the, the leagues, for sure, and it was like, yeah. that season was, and there was like 20,000 at the home games at Highbury, it was just, it was just unbelievable. There, there was a, there was a point, there was a point, and I remember, because he's standing over there, Tony, I remember having a conversation with Tony about before a game, I can't remember, we were playing at home and we looked at the league table and I said, before the game, and I went, did we get beat today? And the, did, mm. we could, we're like two places above the bottom. And so we was like, hang on a minute. And we, I think we won the game and we sort of climbed up the league, but we were pretty mediocre for two or three seasons. 
what people really don't understand, and even when you talk about it, is the amount of time we spent out on that pitch as a back four with just George out there initially, and then he would introduce the youth team against you. I mean, you just we just walked through being in positions all over the pitch, or George holding the ball and moving into positions forwards and backwards, and we just had to move um, collectively together to get an understanding of the positioning that he wanted us to be in in certain situations. Then you start working together, you put it into game time. As year goes by, year goes by, Lee will tell you, is you just knew where each person within the team was going. I knew where, Lee, if something was going to happen, let's say down Lee's side, I knew where Tony would go, I know where Steve was going to go, and then I, obviously I would move into position as well. So you just got an understanding of what each individual player was going to do. It was so boring. God, <laughs> training was just tedious. We got, I mean, as I said, sometimes we wouldn't even see a ball. And George, the only ball would be George. I'd have it in his hands, and he'd say, "Right, I'm the ball." And then he would like do his little, little jog, little didn't swagger, he? little swagger jog, and he'd run down the pitch, and we'd have to react as if we are closing the ball down or dropping off. And he'd go, "No pressure on now," so we'd have to drop off, and then he'd move over to the left, and then Nigel left to shoot. We were like, "Oh God, we're doing it again." And we'd do it Monday, Tuesday, maybe not Wednesday because we'd have a day off Thursday, Friday, and then Balik our. our little uh, reward for that was winning on a Saturday. That was it. The rest of the week was just, it was, it was hard work. But, it, but we saw the results, you know, we'd get a decent result, we'd keep a clean sheet. So we'd go, actually, I don't mind that. I'd have five days of, of pain to get one day of glory. I, but that that's was, how we looked that, at it. That was the norm for us, wasn't it, in the mm. training? So it was if you, you know, you bought into it very, very early. There was no different training. Um, so you thought, oh, well, that's what George does, so we have to do it if you want to be part of the team. Well, if you didn't buy into it, you were, you were out. Simple as that, so you kind of had a choice. We'll be back with more from 89 in just a second. But we'd like to know how you think the new Arsenal Weekly Podcast story series is going. Already this season, we've heard from Gilberto, Ray Parler and Colo Torre in past months. If you're enjoying this episode, you can go back and listen to those after. We'd also appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes so we can continue to bring you more episodes in the coming months. But now let's head back to the red carpet for the premiere night when first we'll speak to the mastermind of that success, George Graham. But first of all, the hero of the hour, Mickey Thomas. This is the man who finished Liverpool off, who made it happen, the Michael team. Thomas. The man, the team, who, yeah. Can I ask you, why did you take so long over that finish? I was waiting, I was like a poker player, I was waiting for Bruce Grubber to show his hand, and it took him a long time to show his hand, and once he showed his hand, I knew what I was doing. Your teammates all, all say, if it's going to fall to anyone, it needs to fall to Mickey, you were that laid back, is that true? Correct, if you ask George Graham, yeah. I always, get, I always get told off in training for, you know, mucking about and obviously, yes, that was me all the time. What was it like to be part of that experience? It's fantastic. As you can see, like tonight, you know, and the, and the response by the supporters, obviously we're the first team since 71 team or any club in London to win the league. And it's great to rest away from the north, you know, so for, for us it is fantastic. It's a, it's a family. Arsenal weren't given a chance. Uh, you haven't got a prayer. Arsenal was one of the headlines yeah. in the paper leading up there. We laughed at that quite a few times, you know, when we on the, on the coach thinking, oh, here we go. Every paper said the same things. Graham Souness in his hospital bed saying it. Everybody said the same things. We went, OK. We knew we could beat them. That's the thing about it. We knew we could beat Liverpool. And Liverpool were frightened of us. And I, I don't, we had no fear about any, playing any team. And that's what 
you know, that's what drove us on more to, uh, to win things. Tell us about that special camaraderie within the squad. A lot of those players grew up together. We all grew up, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, some of them grew up through the schoolboy ranks. And then the ones that George bought, great buys. Alan Smith, Lee Dixon, Steve Bowles. We all got on together so well, you know. So it was great. Off the field, we enjoyed ourselves. Perry Groves. Let's forget Perry, because Perry have got me later. But yeah, we had a good, we had a good time. It was great. And would you like to be here tonight to see all these old faces? It's the first time we got together as a group since that day. So it's sad, it's a tinge of sadness that it doesn't happen enough because the whole squad, some of the squads are not even here. But it's great if we're all together. Thank you, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure. Cheers. What's the mastermind of Anfield 89, George? What's it like to be back here tonight? Uh, yeah, it brings back a lot of memories and nice ones. And uh, I've not seen many of the boys yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them because, you know, when you leave football, uh, you lose contact with a lot of them. But it's sort of been nice to see them all again. When you look back on 89, there must be a real sense of immense pride at the, the tactical decisions you made. Yeah, well, I was just doing my job at the time and uh, we were quite famous for the back four, the famous back four. And uh, to sort of change it to a back three, uh, it was a big decision, both by myself and my staff, uh, for the players. And I don't think the players were very keen, actually, but uh, uh, it worked. That was the main thing. And... Uh, there's no reason why it can't work again. Liverpool were, were a real titanic side at the time. You didn't go up um, the day before the game. Why was that? Well, when you go up to sort of places like Anfield and Old Trafford and all that, eh, there's always a little bit of hostility by the local, eh, the local fans. So I didn't want this to be in a, a situation where everybody's down on you all the time, try to, you know... Eh, lose confidence uh, you know, in, in, our, in, the, in the team. But uh, no, I, I decided to go up the morning of the match, uh, have a bit of lunch, get the boys to bed, uh, and then be ready for the game in the evening. As for the game itself, do you remember how you felt in the moments before Michael Thomas's late, late goal? Yeah, I, was, I, thought it was, I thought it was going to be all over. I thought it was 1-0, and I was really thinking, well done, guys, you know, we, we give it our best shot. Coming to Anfield and losing, you know, winning one nothing was a fantastic result, but obviously not good enough uh, as two would have been. But a couple of seconds later, we get the second one, and then it's all been worthwhile. An exhilarating night. Alan Smith was telling us earlier today about a story where you went to the back of the bus on the way back, that long trip down the M6 to, to celebrate with the players. How was that? Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I remember the players celebrating. I think they went to a couple of. Uh, I think it was a pub in Southgate and a club there as well. Uh, and I went home at the sun and then we, we, we travelled up to Scotland the next morning. Tactically, how does it compare with what you did against Palmer in 94? Uh, yeah, it was a big decision. Obviously, the Anfield one was bigger uh, because, I mean, as I say, nobody went to Liverpool and beat them 2-0. It just didn't happen. But uh, for us to do it, you know, it was fantastic. Completely different uh, from Copenhagen uh, against Palmer. I mean, that was almost as good as a Liverpool uh, performance. But that was phenomenal to go up there and beat uh, Palmer, who had half the Italian national team. Uh, but well, that was even that was wonderful as well. But the Liverpool one was uh, the one that uh, we started. They opened up the door for more trophies. Thanks very much. We celebrate 89 tonight. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers. You.
it wasn't just the heroes of 1989 that graced the premier. Celebrity fan Alan Davis and the man who used that night at Anfield as inspiration for fever pitch, Nick Hornby, also spoke to Arsenal media's Chris Harris. Alan, let's get one thing straight first of all. Some people out there think Sergio Aguero's goal was the most dramatic end to a title ever. Why are they utterly wrong? Oh, well, it, this was about the two teams going head-to-head. -head. And uh, there's never been anything quite like it, a standalone fixture after all the other clubs have gone on holiday from the best two teams in the country. It was really, it was really special. It's a bit of a where were you moment for Arsenal fans, so where were you? I was on a sofa with my friends Damien and Tom. I still sit with Damien in the West Stand. I was the season ticket holder on the North Bank in those days, the old terrace season ticket. I uh, couldn't get a ticket for the original fixture, which was going to be in April. So we watched it on the box. Unforgettable. How many times have you seen Michael Thomas's goal and does it still give you goosebumps? Thomas's goal gives me goosebumps every time. Composure was extraordinary. The commentary, of course. We started doing a podcast several years ago, and originally we called it It's Up for Grabs Now. It's just one of those immortal phrases. Although the radio commentary is every bit as exciting, extraordinary. And I just remember touching the TV with tears in my eyes in disbelief. And I think that's everyone. And I think I've seen the film already, and there won't be a dry eye in the house. Very, very powerful. How does it feel to be hosting tonight? Well, it's a great privilege for me, you know, and uh, George Graham's coming, Tony Adams, Michael Thomas will be here, Lee Dixon will be here. So it'd be nice just to hang out with them for a bit and see what they remember. Thanks, Alan. Nick Hornby at the 89 premiere, Fever Pitch 89. This, this story won't go away. No, it's still the greatest story ever told. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, yes, well, I've, I've still got my Arsenal win the World Cup from 1998 that Piers Morgan put on the front of the mirror. But, yeah, that, I think it's, it's going to be impossible to better the drama of it. I know Manchester City fans will go on about their day, but, you know, they were playing against a, a poor team at home and we were playing against the most dominant team in England over the previous 20 years away. It's a big difference. And also playing against a team which were deemed pretty unbeatable on their own ground. Completely. I mean, we can all remember that when Liverpool lost at home, it was a news story. Um, it just didn't happen very often at all. And it wasn't just having to win, it was to win by a, a score. So it all felt pretty impossible. And I think also a seismic season on and off the pitch. You've got to remember Hillsborough and the, and the backdrop to this as well. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, it was a very dramatic year. Both those championship years were, were very dramatic, actually, 89 and 91. But um, 89, you know, the, the terrible sadness of April and then the joy of the end of May. Where were you, Nick? Where were you watching and uh, how did you feel? I was, uh, I was in uh, Highbury, in uh, a road, Chatterton Road, just around the corner from the stadium, uh, with a group of friends. And... Um, well, time stood still. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I saw that we had a chance and, and I thought, oh, you know, I was stopping myself from feeling anything. I was just thinking, oh, well, maybe we came close there at the end. That's great. And then saw him spinning away and doing his little uh, tumble and realised that we'd won. Never gets boring. Never gets boring. But then terrifying, of course, because they only needed a goal. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Nick. Good to All see right. you. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy the film.
Well, Michael Thomas's goal is central to any 89 story, but let's not forget that it was Alan Smith's header that set us on the way at Anfield that night. Here's Smudger with his memories. Alan, there's a line from George Graham in 89 The Movie that says, isn't it lovely to have moments in your life when you think nothing can beat that? Can anything beat Anfield 89? I, th I think at the time, we sat back in the dressing room afterwards, uh, we took a breath and a sip of champagne and um, we thought, well, how is anything ever going to top that? I think we realised that at the time, which is quite unusual because it's only you know, two or three years away from the moment quite often that you think, well, that, that, that was special and yes, nothing ever will top that. But Anfield 89, yeah, we, we were all in agreement. And of course, the lads that went on to play for Arsene Wenger and they won the double, I think, you know, Lee and Boldy and Nigel, Tony, they, they probably agree that, yeah, Anfield was the top, the pinnacle. People say about the Invincible side that you need some distance before you understand the magnitude, the yes. significance of the achievement. Is it similar for Anfield as well? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It, yeah, I think the further away you get from it, it goes into folklore, doesn't it? It's a legend. Um, these shots that you see of a football in another age almost, and uh, it does get more and more special, but... As I say, for us, it felt really special at the time as well. It, it, it's such a privilege to have been involved in a game like that because I do think it's the most dramatic game in English football, British football history. It's going to be difficult to ever top that because it was a standalone game at the end of the season between the two title chasers and the, the Premier League would never allow that to happen now. And there was this wider picture, of course, it was seismic on and off the pitch with Hillsborough too. So there was all that. There was a very unique season in that sense too. Yeah, emotionally charged, without question. We had that uh, little hiatus when football was suspended and um, we, we were very much aware of that, travelling up to, to Liverpool that day and obviously we went out with the bouquets of flowers and went to all four corners of the ground to offer them to supporters, which I think set the right tone, was received really well. Uh, but then everybody suddenly gets the mine onto the game. There's this huge roar that goes up. But, I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like for those Liverpool players in the, in the preceding weeks, for Kenny Dalglish attending funerals and everything. It must have had an effect, a big effect on them. Everyone knows the story of Anfield 89 in terms of what happened on the pitch. When you think back, are there unusual things that spring to mind, things we wouldn't have seen? 
I don't know really. Um, I mean, I, n I never forget sat at London Colney a few days before the Friday and we were looking a bit glum after Liverpool had beaten West Ham and it was obvious we had to win by two goals and we were all sat there before training. Bob Wilson comes around the corner and he goes, cheer up lads, what's the matter with you? This is the week, we're going to win the league. And uh, we all looked at him, well, oh, thanks Bob, but you know, uh, all the best. Uh, so we didn't really believe it when he said that. Uh, and, uh, but I, I remember travelling up on, on the coach and we were all in great spirits. It was a feeling of uh, what have we got to lose? We went and stopped at the Atlantic Towers on the quayside there in Liverpool and uh, had, a, had some lunch and we went to bed as you did for a night game. I was sharing with David O'Leary and we slept like babies that afternoon, had a good two or three hours, which is quite unusual because sometimes you shut the curtains but you're tossing and turning in your bed thinking about the match. But we came down for tea and toast at four, half four and everybody had said they slept really well. So it was quite unusual from that perspective. If you'd beaten Derby and beaten Wimbledon, you still would have needed the points at Anfield, which is no, no, no mean feat. That would have changed Liverpool's approach. Did it help having that being written off so early? Yeah, well, I think, you know, some of the articles in the newspapers spurred us on. Graham Souness did one. I think Men Against Boys was mentioned, talking about their football in contrast to ours, which gave us the hump a little bit. So uh, we pinned that one on the dressing room uh, notice board. Um, but yeah, I think, I think from Liverpool's point of view, the fact that they, you're going into a game that you can lose 1-0 does funny things with your mind. You, know? you don't quite know how to approach, approach the match, whereas we not only knew we had to win it, but we had to win it by two goals. But I think that's where George Graham came in, in, in making sure that we uh, focused in the right way. And it, it wasn't about going out there and chasing those two goals quickly. It was about keeping the clean sheet more than anything, because... If Liverpool were to score, you've got to score three and it's game over, really. So he saw it probably more clearly than any of us players. Let's talk about the two goals. The first goal, we've seen that free-kick routine a few times earlier in the season, but I think that might have been the first time it, it really paid off. Yeah, I mean, we used to practice it in training and you'd get fed up of it and we'd go, Gaffer, this never comes off on a match day, you know? Why do we keep doing this? But uh, thankfully it did on the biggest of nights. Um, I think uh, Baldy was meant to peel around the back, or Tony was. I don't know. Probably didn't go perfectly according to how we'd rehearsed it, but Nigel's ball was spot on, and I just managed to ghost in and get the flick. There was a feeling that it might get snatched away. What are the emotions during the, those tense couple of minutes when the ref speaks to the linesman? I was convinced he was going to point to the you know, um, penalty area and go, yeah, offside or whatever. I was convinced he was going to disallow it because... The ref and the linesman were surrounded by red shirts and there was only David O'Leary, I think, that was kind of given our side of the argument. So fair play to the ref for standing his ground, staying strong. And, and when he pointed to the centre circle, you're thinking, oh, you know, it is game on now. And uh, you know, our chests expanded and uh, Liverpool's minds might have got, you know, I think... The crowd get nervous, that transmits itself to the players and it, it, it's a different contest altogether. Mickey's goal, we need to talk about that first touch. Yeah, I mean, I was known for having a good first touch, but I think that night, uh, above a few others, everything came off that I, I tried. My touch was nice and secure. 
So when Lee's kind of fizzed it up the right hand channel, I knew I had to turn first time. I knew I had to take a chance with my touch because it wasn't an easy skill, but the touch came off just as I wanted it to. It was a nice cushion and allowed me to just flick it through first time to, to Mickey. Uh, I kind of seen Mickey in my peripheral vision, a yellow shirt making the run and I just tried to, it was a bit of a toe poke really into his path. And of course he got the break of the ball and uh, yeah. And Mickey makes that run time and time again uh, for Arsenal. As he's going through, you've got your own unique vantage point. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Like, I mean, like most of the lads, yeah, I was, what was I, 15, 20 yards behind him. It wasn't a situation where I ever thought I could get in support and offer a pass. Mickey was kind of free and it was, it was all up to him. So you can see the picture uh, unfolding, players converging players just about to get in a tackle and you're just praying that Mickey's going to let go with his shot before they do get in this tackle. Because we, we all knew what Mickey was like, he, he did things in, in his own time, he was so stubborn really as a character but that's what worked for him on the night. He was going to shoot when he felt he needed to and he was waiting for Grobelar to make his move. It was a bit of a poker situation, you know, and until he did, that's not, that, he wasn't going to shoot before that. We saw some lovely footage in the movie of the winner's bar where the players celebrated with the fans long into the night and into the morning. What are your memories of the celebrations going back down the M6 and then getting back to London? Yeah, it was a coach journey to end all coach journeys, really. Uh, it went like a flash. The supporters were overtaking us, hanging out of sunroofs and windows and beeping the horns, and then they were slowing down and overtaking again. And, we were obviously waving out the window. Uh, George Graham came to the back of the coach to have a drink and a sing-song with us, which is like, whoa, the gaffer never did that. Um, so we knew something unusual had happened. I mean, he was proud as punch, as, as we all were. So the coach journey seemed to last uh, two minutes rather than two and a half hours, whatever it did last. And then, yeah, after winners, I, I don't know who had organised that, um, but the lads who owned that had laid on a bit of food and... Uh, few frames of snooker uh, and uh, I don't know what time I got back home about four in the morning maybe but it was, uh, it was some night. We heard from her at the start of the podcast but the final word today has to go to the 89's producer Amy Lawrence. Absolutely astonished, um, amazingly proud Quite surreal, excited, and just really, really hopeful that people enjoy this half as much as we enjoyed making it. What really says it all for me is picking up the newspapers the day after the game in 1989, it said the greatest story ever told. It tells you you're onto a good thing, and, and what we needed to do is tell that story to the best of our ability. And the fact that the players, George Graham, people who were involved at the time, shared such deep memories about what they went through in that time was just a, a, a glorious thing, to, a very exhilarating thing to, to, to witness. Well, if this has whet your appetite and you've not seen 89 as yet, remember it's available on DVD and Blu-ray right now. Don't forget, too, the Arsenal Weekly podcast is back every Monday throughout the remainder of this season. Look out, too, for our next Stories episode in the coming months. We're talking in-depth to Lee Dixon. And until then, it's bye for now. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money. 